he realised late in life that, you know, life is a, is a battle and it's a battle not just against your own demons. Those demons can be quite trivial compared to the, the broader battles that we are all called to fight. And in Bill's case, it was, it was the fight for truth and, and beauty and the virtues of Australian culture and freedom. And he saw all those things coming and he just thought, well, who, who wants to do, who wants to face that with a hangover? I mean, who's got time to get shit faced when you're, you know, you've got this calling in life to, um, to be uh, a commentator when Western civilization itself is under threat. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me is the graphically challenged Jonathan Astro. How are you? You don't know that. I could be really good. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> do, do, do you have uh, Do you have cartooning skills? No, I can I can only draw like buff Superman uh, and buff dudes. That's pretty much all I drew when I was young. Just big, muscly men. So that's all I can do. I, I, I'm, I'm not as skilled as the man whose biographer we're speaking to today. That's right. So we are speaking to Fred Paul, who wrote the book about the great Bill Leake. Who, would you say his cartoon is arguably the most famous cartoon? I think it is, yeah. I'm sure we'll get into that. Absolutely. Let's do it. Fred Paul is a journalist and producer and now a published author. He was communications director at the Menzies Research Center from, from 2017 to 2020. He has worked for GQ Australia and has contributed to The Australian, The Spectator, Sky News Australia, and one of our favorites, Spiked. He was also a friend and colleague of cartoonist Bill Leake and has written the book about his life called Die Laughing, the biography of Bill Leake. Fred, welcome to The New Flesh. Oh, thanks very much for having me. We're so glad to have you on the show uh, to talk about Bill Leake and the book. Uh, is it fair to say that this book has been shunned by our national broadcaster, the ABC? That's a very fair thing to say um, and in, entirely accurate. Unfortunately, um, when the book came out, I sent six copies of the book to the ABC and uh, just never heard back. I mean, I, I'm not saying that you know, that I have a natural right to appear on the ABC just because I wrote a biography of a friend of mine. But Bill, in many ways, was the the absolute quintessential Australian. And last time I looked, the A in ABC stood for Australia. And for them to ignore uh, this book, you know, whether it was written by me or anyone else, is, is extremely suspicious. That, you know, none of them ex have explained to me or got back to me about why they chose not to um, discuss the book or, or promote it or any way. I have my suspicions about why, but um, but uh, yeah, I, I find it I find it incredibly disappointing, and uh, but not entirely surprising because that's what the uh, ABC is like these days. Bill Bill was in the later years of his life, as a lot of your listeners would probably know, but we you know we should discuss. He went from being a lefty to being quite conservative um those those labels are beyond meaningless these days bill's values never changed in his life he was born a, a kind of classical liberal and as when he was growing up um that meant you were a lefty you know because the conservatives were stuffy and didn't want you to have fun and you know didn't want you to experiment in life uh, and then um towards the mid 2000s 
when Bill was, you know, a bit older in life and probably a bit more sensible and those sort of things didn't appeal to him anymore, he suddenly discovered that the the uh, censorious people were his friends, you know, especially at the ABC, you know, the people who who did want to dictate how other people should live their lives and the people who were defending freedom were conservatives. So Bill just started hanging out with people who... Uh, Defended freedom uh, because it was precious to him, and uh, he it's, lived his life. It's frustrating, it. Fred, because uh, just before we get in, dive into the, uh, the the book and Bill himself and everything, just on the ABC, it's frustrating because there's a lot of frivolous content on the ABC. And, you know, I think Annabelle Crabbe's got about ten shows, and uh, you know, <laughs> but, but seriously, in the interest, uh, isn't it in their interest to explore uh, this remarkable and and or, if you like controversial figure? You know, they could have, they could have even leaned into the controversy if they if they wanted. They could have easily made a few calls and lent into the controversy, and we would have that documentary that really should have happened after he died. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And then when you when you look at it a little bit deeper, you, you realise that what they're actually afraid of is debate, is is opposing opinions. And uh, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, I I think I've been shunned by the ABC because they know that I would smash them out of the park. You know, if, if they have reservations about what Bill stood for late in life then and express them in my company, I would make sure that they would look entirely foolish for having those reservations because Bill was a good bloke. He lived his life honestly and openly. He was intelligent. He was creative. He was compassionate. He, he had enormous virtues and for them to um, disregard him and by extension, you know, be sceptical about what sort of man he was. I mean, that, that's what I'm reading into it. If, they, if, they're not, if they're not prepared to discuss Bill's life, then it's because they have serious reservations about what sort of man he became. Hmm. Then, um, then bring it on, you know. Bring it on! I'd, I'd I'd love to discuss that with them, and mm. I can guarantee that they would probably uh, look quite foolish as a result. Well, Fred, b- b- before we uh, get into the meat and bones of 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 the book and Fred, maybe for our listeners who might not be that familiar with Bill Leak, uh, it, it might be important to outline why the ABC, because uh, there is some controversy around a particular cartoon that Bill yes. wrote, uh, b- b- you know, a number of years before his death. Uh, that m- maybe you could explain that to our audience. Okay, so in 2016, Bill drew what is now uh, probably the most famous cartoon in Australian history. Until then, it was um, Stan Cross's uh, cartoon from uh, 1930, I think it was, or 1929, um, of two guys on a construction site who they've just suffered, there's been some awful accident and they're hanging by a steel girder high above the street. And one guy's holding onto the girder and the other guy's holding onto the other bloke's pants and they've come down. And, and the bloke b- beneath who's hanging onto the pants is looking up and laughing his head off and his mate says, uh, for God's sake, stop laughing, this is serious. And that very much encapsulated Australian humour and attitude to life. You know, we were, we were at that time and from a long time afterwards, uh, you know, kind of resigned to the the um, the vicissitudes of life and 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 cruelness of fate and so on, 
And by 2016, that had changed dramatically. And Bill drew a cartoon in response to a documentary that was, or a show that was put up on Four Corners um, uh, about awful, awful treatment of young Aboriginal boys at the Dondale Detention Centre in Darwin. And it sparked a debate about um, the, the treatment of these kids. Um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who was Prime Minister at the time, immediately called a Royal Commission into how this could happen and so on. But what was what was kind of being overlooked was how how did how do Aboriginal kids wind up in jail in the first place? You know, at the age of 14, 15, 16, that sort of stuff. And it came to light that um, that you know they come from dysfunctional families. This is not rocket science. So a good two weeks after this controversy um, uh, began, Bill waited a while. Uh, Bill was the resident. Cart a daily cartoonist at the Australian at the time, and had been for a long time. And he, uh, you know, he he thought about it deeply, which he always he thought about everything deeply. And it wasn't a a knee jerk reaction to the situation. It was his second cartoon on the topic, um, but it was definitely his most significant contribution to the debate. And it it was an Aboriginal cop who's collared a, a, a delinquent Aboriginal kid. Uh, they're in the outback, and he's he's holding the kid by the collar, and he's addressing the kid's father, who's got a can of beer in his hand, and he said, and he says something to the effect of, "You're going to have to teach your son um, how to um, about personal responsibility," and the 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 father is um, not even looking anywhere, kind of looking at the ground. He says, "Yeah, righto. What's his name then?" Um, Bill wasn't a, trying to be funny, but he it was as light a touch as you could imagine on a, an awfully awfully grim situation and in fact it, it was it was mild um if you look into what happens in these aboriginal communities um you know bill was bill was addressing the sort of the, the least um uh, despairing aspect of it it was you know at um parental dis um lack of responsibility i mean he could have been addressing you know, child rape, you know, which is common. Um, anyway, so that it, it then transpired that, um, I mean, within hours of this this uh, cartoon being published in The Australian, the usual suspects were up in arms saying it was, um, it was racist. Uh, now, it clearly wasn't because um, Bill was also depicting a, a responsible Aboriginal police officer. So he was, he was saying um, that, you know, some Aboriginal fathers are uh, incapable of being responsible, and some are capable. But the the focus of the in in the, the what was really disturbing was that amidst all the um, controversy over this cartoon, what was what was actually forgotten was the welfare of the poor kid, and that's what Bill was trying to address. Mm. Well, we've seen some prominent uh, Aboriginal leaders uh, and speakers come out in support of that. One being uh, Anthony Dillon, who I, I saw he did a YouTube response to it. So um, it seems once again that it's inner city elites that are up in arms, and not not the community that that Bill is trying to kind of shed a light on and trying to, uh, you know, trying to to come up with solutions. You know, is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the opposition to this came from d 
deep within the inner city. It didn't come from Aboriginal communities. They, these, were, these are all cookie-cutter uh, reactionaries to people, uh, to, to um, commentary that they simply disagree with. And when they disagree with it, they don't uh, provoke a, a debate, they just yell racist. That's mm. just their standard, uh, their, their standard strategy. And, and what was the fallout for Bill there? Was he was he let go from the paper? Well, uh, the, well, the paper, um, to its credit, um, supported him um, all the way. You know, I mean, News Corp is very good at looking after its staff in these situations because News Corp at the time was um, was a staunch defender of freedom of speech, and so the. The editor-in-chief at the time was um, Paul Whitaker, and his defence of, um, of Bill was, was uh, un- unquestionable. I mean, he was, you know, uh, News Corp was very good at looking after Bill in, in, in this particular time. But I, might, I should point out, though, that um, this disturbed Bill enormously, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, was that I, I wanted to capture Bill's life and, and comprehensively explain that that there was that bill was like <laughs> it's hard for me to put it into words sometimes because I, I you know i really i adored the bloke you know i still miss him but it's um that I, I couldn't imagine anyone less racist than bill leak it's it you know to be racist was entirely anathema to everything he lived for one of the things that emerged from the book or from my research about his life was that he was he was incredibly consistent throughout his life about his values, and one of his most most heartfelt values was egalitarianism. That's why he loved Australia so much. And he, to, for him to be criticised, broadly criticised as being racist, was was deeply deeply disturbing to him. And for he for an apparatus of the state, which was the Human Rights Commission. Um, to actually pursue him on a charge of racism just absolutely, um, uh, you know, it made him despair very deeply. And I'm convinced, it's difficult to, to prove this, but I'm, I'm convinced that it contributed to the heart condition um, that killed him. He died of a heart attack, you know, soon after all this transpired. So, you know, um, it's, it, it's the, the, in some ways... All this controversy, uh, which was enthusiastically pursued by a, um, a bunch of apparatchiks from the federal government and the ABC and various other usual suspects, you know, con- contributed to the death of a, of a great um, Australian. Well, I think that is a, 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 a wonderful teaser. So let's flash back in time uh, to the beginning of our story. But but first, this is a difficult question without notice. If you had to pick a few just uh, of Bill's artworks that best encapsulate him, which would you choose? Just a couple. Oh, that's a great question. I I got to say, soon after um, Bill died, I went down to the National Portrait Gallery, and I saw he did two portraits of Don Bradman, and um, one of them was hanging in the portrait gallery, and I burst into tears. Um, because in it, he, he did two portraits of, of Bradman. The first one was uh, Bradman was standing behind a chair and he, he's, uh, Bradman's in his 70s at this stage, I think. They were painted in the 
uh, would have been, I think, the mid-80s or something. Anyway, um, the first portrait he did, which was uh, uh, commissioned by Bradman himself, um, Bradman's standing behind a chair and he looks, he's got square shoulders, he's got his hands uh, gripping the chair as if he's like a, like a former sportsman would. You know, he looks, he looks like a retired batsman in this picture. And he was then, um, someone else commissioned um, Bill to do a portrait again. And on this occasion, Bill later explained in a piece in The Australian that he didn't know Bradman in, at his peak as a batsman. He'd met Bradman once and he just knew him as a happy old man. And so he, um, so that's how he depicted him. This time he was sitting in the chair and he's staring at the, um, at the, at the viewer. And I, I remember, you know, later I've, I've looked at this portrait at, at length now and, and I, I later concluded that he looks like sort of a kindly old uncle who's waiting to be served a cup of tea. Like he, he's not, he's not the guy who, who, who comprehensively destroyed the English cricket team. He's just a, a kind old man. And when I saw it, this, I had seen this portrait, reproductions of this portrait many times. He, uh, Bill used to have it up on his fridge. But this was the first time I'd seen it in real life. And it, it wasn't only Bradman I was seeing. I could see Bill's gentleness coming through this canvas. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, it was soon after Bill died and, um, uh, yeah, it moved me a lot. Um, the other portrait I'd say would be Chow Hayes. I think Chow Hayes is is just just a magnificent piece of work. It, it was bought by someone in New Zealand. No one even knows where it is anymore. But the but the reproductions are are um, are still ex extremely um, effective. Chow Hayes was was one of Australia's worst gangsters, and Bill quite cheekily uh, painted him and entered him into the Archibald Prize, which is meant to be for people of, of high esteem in the community. And and somehow it got hung in the you know in, as among the finalists. It's it's an absolutely brilliant um, study. But a lot of people rave about Bill's portrait of of Robert Hughes, and I go into a lot of detail in it in the book, um, which I won't I won't go into too much detail about now. But Bill did two attempts at it, and and I I think you know without being too much of an art critic about it, I don't think he quite captured Robert Hughes very well. But um, uh, but some people think it's his finest work. So you know these are very subjective conclusions, and that is also um, being. Um, uh, is in storage at the National Portrait Gallery, and uh, if you if you request, if you ask them nicely, they'll actually take you downstairs and and bring it out for you, um, which they did for me. Um, Bill Bill was very ambitious with the Robert Hughes uh, portrait, but um, for various reasons, I think he didn't quite hit the mark. But anyway, they're, they're three of his his probably most significant portraits. Well, let's go right back to the beginning. Uh, how did your relationship with Bill begin? Okay, I um, I met Bill when he uh, jumped ship from Fairfax to News Limited in 1994. I'd only just arrived in Sydney. I arrived in Sydney in 92. I, I grew up in Perth and I'd worked in Adelaide for a while and finally got a job in Sydney where I'd always wanted to live and didn't know a lot of people, uh, you know, and um, was still kind of finding my feet in Australia. And I'd heard about this bloke called Bill Leake. And he was a his reputation preceded him as a total rat bag, and someone who was, you know, obviously um, quite unpretentious. And and coming from Perth, I found Sydney a pretty pretentious place anyway. So I thought, geez, I wouldn't mind meeting this bloke. And the next thing I know, he's 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 joined the Australian, 
not as a cartoonist but as an illustrator because he was a, a an accomplished artist and um and wanted had, had wanted to become a cartoonist and join the Australian on the promise that he would eventually get the gig as the daily cartoonist anyway I'd heard all about him and and we had friends in common so you know I was just a lowly sub-editor at the Australian like a you know pretty much a nobody to be honest and he was this guy who'd been hired as a rising star at the Australian and um I just walked up to him and said you know you know someone I know and and he goes oh yeah he's a he's a bloody good bloke and we shook hands and and we just became friends straight away and this is not uh, not a uh, an unusual <laughs> unusual occurrence bill made friends very very easily and uh and um he was he was an he had a, one of his gifts uh, you know kind of wanted to bring out in the book was he had a gift for friendship he actually knew how to be a good mate um, so when his friends were down, he was the first to sort of lend them a helping hand. He was always lending his friends money and, you know, like friends going into rehab, he'd be the first one to, because a lot of his friends did. Um, but, uh, you know, he'd be the first one there to visit them and, you know, like he was just a damn good mate. You know, he really knew how to how to uh, look after his friends. So, yeah, we, we became friends. I, I was lucky. Um, I, I consider myself very lucky, though, because... I was, I'm, um, what, I'm, I think, six or seven years old, uh, younger than Bill, and at the time, I was, and still am, I was a really keen surfer. Bill was sober in 94. He had a lifelong struggle with alcohol, and uh, it, he'd almost lost his family over it. His kids were early teenagers at the time, and to, to sort of keep his mind off alcohol and reunite him, re, revive his friendship with his, his relationship with his two sons, he... He started surfing again because he'd been a surfer as a young bloke. And so the four of us, me, Bill and Johannes and Jasper, we, you know, we became surfing buddies. And we used to go down the coast a lot and, and you know, Johannes and I became, you know, really close because he was obsessive about it. And um, and the four of us went to went to Indonesia together Um uh, to the Mentawai Islands, which any surfers listening will 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 understand the significance of that. We went in 1996 when it had only just been discovered, and it's one of the best places in the world for a surfer to go. And um, and yeah, we went we went there, and and as a result, I kind of I had a you know Bill had a lot of friends, and and when he got back on the pier, so back you know a couple of years after that, a lot of his friends kind of you know they were they were larrikin friends, and they were drinking buddies, and Soon after that, I had kids of my own, and I kind of I I remained friends with Bill, but I wasn't front and center when he got back into drinking, so I wasn't wasn't a big part of his drinking days, and I'm really grateful for that. So on one hand, I, I almost felt like family to Bill, and um and I, I luckily kind of avoided the 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 darker parts of his more debaucherous years, and so I feel like I was in a pretty good position as a biographer. Um, to to be objective uh, when I needed to be, um, but you know, intimate when I um, w- when I needed to be as well. Because Bill Bill had friends. There are some friends who Bill had who he, he was probably much closer with. But I think I have a, a, a more comprehensive view of his life, um, which which uh, was an advantage as a biographer. You did mention another character in his life that we just could cover as well. Uh, he had a complicated relationship with alcohol. So, what what uh, relationship did the booze play in his life, and and how did it affect his family and his work? Bill was a 
Bill was a, a, a larrikin and a tough guy. You know, he 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 loved sort of you know aggressive behaviour and being a being a knockabout bloke. And and part of the attraction to alcohol was that he thought alcohol couldn't kill him. You know, like it, it was it was a measure of his his kind of his toughness and his resilience that he could drink anyone under the table kind of thing. A very Australian machismo kind of attitude he i lived in the same block of apartments as bill at one stage this would have been around the year 2000 when he was he was really you know giving it a hard nudge and um uh i he used to come down most afternoons and have a couple of beers and then he'd go on his way into whatever nocturnal adventures would ensue and um you know i had i was you know with my wife at the time and two little kids and he'd pop in for a beer and you know Anyway, one day he turned up and uh, he was um, he was grey and he was kind of sniffly and he, he was slouching and he looked just awful. And I said, oh, mate, what's up? And he goes, oh, mate, I've got the flu. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's more than the flu, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, but, you know, he, he, any other person would have just consigned themselves to bed. And um, I said, oh, you know, well, so you won't be having a beer then, because that's what he did most days. And and he and he looked at me kind of sternly with the, with a sardonic look in his eyes. He said, "He said, mate, I said I was sick. I didn't say I was dead." <laughs> 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 so yeah, off to the fridge I went. You know, humbly um, offered him a beer, and yeah, he. So, but you know, Bill. Um, at times, he 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 did say he had an addictive personality, which is the the sort of card that, that that people throw down when their lives have been ruined by various proclivities. But later in life, Bill Bill would often say to me how annoying he found that um, that that assertion that most that you know some people would say you know my my life's been ruined because I've got an addictive personality. He he didn't he didn't give it much credence. And in the end, it's interesting that you ask about it because. In the end, he, he just naturally gave up. I mean, his his second wife, Gum, who was the third major woman in his life, she claims um, partial responsibility um, for him getting off the booze. And I, I, I think I have no reason to, you know, to um, to doubt that. She she was a very wholesome um, uh, influence in his life. But he reached a point where he realised that there was just so much more to life than um, than being a larrikin and and being um, you know a drinker for that matter. You know he 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 realised late in life, but you know it's never too late to realise these things. That you know life is a is a battle, and it's a battle um, not not just against your own demons. Those demons can be quite trivial compared to the the broader battles that we are all called to fight and in bill's case it was it was the fight for truth and and beauty and the virtues of australian culture and freedom and he saw all those things coming and he just thought well who who wants to do who wants to face that with a hangover i mean who's got time to get shit faced when you're you know you've got this calling in life to um to be uh, a commentator when Western civilization itself 
is under threat. And and Bill didn't see it. I'm not exaggerating. That's the way Bill saw it. And that's the way I see it, you know, and a lot of us continue to, you know, it is an, on, an ongoing battle. Mm. Well, that that fight inside of him, uh, where do you think that came from? It's, it's, does it have a deep, deep roots in his life? Did it come from, from his upbringing? Well, that's a good question. And that's how I start the book, because I, you know, I knew him for 23 years. And, and all that time, I never actually questioned, you know, where did he get this from? He was he was born to um, to uh, criticise or um, uh, have a crack at abuses of power. He was just it, it, anyone who was even slightly prone to abuse power. Bill was right onto them. I mean, when Paul Kelly interviewed Bill to to become a, a an illustrator and, and prospective cartoonist at the Australian. He, he said, he recalled at the time that Bill, all Bill wanted to do was call out frauds and phonies. They're the words that Paul Kelly used. And Paul was being extremely um, astute because at the time, most, Bill, most people just thought Bill was a crazy lefty, you know, he, and, he, and he was by, by, most, by, by most measures. Um, but Paul Kelly, um, to, in his wisdom, saw that Bill was just simply born to call out frauds and phonies. And so I, when I embarked on the book, the first person I went to was his sister Lynn um, to talk about some things from their family that I thought might be relevant. And uh, again, I won't go into too much detail about it because um, it's probably better read as a passage in the book, but Bill had Bill's parents, their first child um, was a, a girl called Kathleen, uh, who was um, diagnosed with, I think it was diphtheria or something, um, that, and the family was poor. Um, and anyway, the, um, the, the, the child was two and died in the care of um, doctors and nurses at a hospital in Adelaide uh, and was, and for the last sort of two weeks of her life, was not allowed to be cuddled by her parents. And this is a, there was a, Bill, Bill told me this story, this anecdote, as uh, over a couple of beers once, and he, and he it, it had had, in Bill's, um, in Bill's opinion, it had had a profound effect on the family because in Bill's case, it certainly, at least, it taught him to be deeply suspicious of people in authority because they, they not only um, do they, uh, are they prone to abuse their authority, but they don't have your interests at heart. They didn't have Kathleen's interests at heart as far as Bill was concerned. And um, so that's where it all began. Um, and it was just imbued into Bill because he, another aspect of the book that I wanted to um that, that I wanted to capture was that Bill's life was almost um, emblematic of Australia right throughout the post-war years. And so he grew up, you know, a, an absolute joker. His dad was a, was a classic larrikin. Um, and he, he, by the time he, he returned to Australia from Germany as a young man in his sort of early 20s, he was just primed to become a cartoonist because he was just the quintessential um, larrikin Australian joker who also happens to be an exquisite draftsman and artist. So, you know, he, he went on to redefine Australian cartooning, in my opinion, um, because he combined two um, 
two great skills, um, humour and brilliant drawing skills and, and caricatures. So, yeah, that, that's where it came from. And, uh, it, it, again, Bill was astonishingly consistent throughout his life. Uh, his values never changed. There is a perception out there that Bill changed his politics, that he abandoned the traditional left or, you know, I don't even know how to characterise that now. What, 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 we, what we used to think of as the left, uh, that he has abandoned that and became a deranged conservative uh, and the critics would cite his views on climate, um, Islam, uh, Indigenous affairs, I suppose. So, so what's the real story here? I mean, you've already touched on it, but did, did, did Bill change at all? No, no, the left changed. And this happens all around Western civilization at the moment. There's lots of people. Bill's not, um, Bill's not the only one, but there's a, there's a lot of people who realised, um, you know, starting probably about 20 years ago, that the new authority in society, the people who were abusing their authority, you know, as, as Bill would have seen it, were the left. You know, they had stopped being uh, libertarian and laissez-faire and started becoming the, um, the new dictators. And so when Bill realised that's what had happened, you know, where, did, where do you go from there? So, you know, where, where do you go to find people who defend your right to make your own decisions and accept the consequences of those decisions? Where do you find them? And then suddenly, you know, someone hands him a copy of John Stuart Mill and, you know, Edmund Burke and, you know, and suddenly he's, he's discovering that there's these organisations like the Centre for Independent Studies and the Institute of Public Affairs that are completely um, uh, populated by people who, who have not only a, a, an instinctive um, defence of people's right to make their own decisions and, and live their own lives according to their own, um, you know, their own values, but an intellectual one as well. And so, you know, that's, I mean, Bill found himself among his own kind and, uh, and you know, the friendships he made during that time were probably more enduring than the friendships he made when he was a lefty. Because as we've already discussed, you know, his friends, at, his left-leaning friends at the ABC pretty soon abandoned him. Well, the case is bolstered by uh, another cancelled giant uh, that introduces your book, Barry Humphreys, writes in the introduction. He delivers some knockout blows in, in, in an excellent introduction. Uh, he says, quote, the new Puritanism in Australia, which endorses unfunny comedians who merely, quote, identify as funny, also condemns every form of creative art it doesn't understand. Well, I've never heard something so on point uh, in recent times as identifying as funny. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which is true, everyone on the ABC. Yes. All of, those, all of those establishment <laughs> comedians identify as funny. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's almost as fraudulent as identifying as Indigenous, I guess. Um, uh, how do you prove that they're not funny? Um, I guess it's that that's also difficult, but um, I don't find them funny. Uh, and Barry is. You know, Barry's the, Barry's the funniest, um, probably the funniest Australian who ever lived. One of the one of the most extraordinary moments I ever witnessed was when Barry gate crashed the um, the launch of uh, Trigger Warning, which was Bill's last book, and this happened um, on the Wednesday night 
two days before uh, Bill died. And um, uh, I, I, you know, it was almost like the culmination of, of, of Bill's life, you know, because Bill adored and, and revered Barry. And he was launching his book at the Centre of Independent Studies in Sydney. And it wasn't a well-kept secret. Barry turned up as Sir Les Patterson and, um, and crashed, you know, crashed the launch mid-speech. Um, uh, Bill was, you know, Bill was talking and uh, up, up comes this, this gauche bloke in a pastel blue suit. It was just wonderful. And it, it was wonderful to be there because, you know, everything came, to, came together for Bill that night. And, uh, you know, it... It, um, he, you know, it, it's it's just kind of gratifying to know that he lived long enough to experience a moment like that because it, it really was extraordinary. I mean, Trigger Warning is a great book. Um, uh, it's a compilation of cartoons, but it, it 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 it's mostly about freedom of speech, which was Bill's um, most uh, sort of the the most serious thing that Bill was addressing at the time. Uh, um, his wife Gung catered for the event. Um, uh, you know, his son ja- uh, Johannes was there. You know, all his all his best friends were there, and um, and then you know Barry Humphreys crashes it. it you know, you, you could you could experience a night like that and go, you know, geez, well, I'll I'll, I'll die happy now. <laughs> so yeah. Well, you you mentioned freedom of speech there. Uh, we've talked about one of the controversies. One of the other controversies is that. Um, Bill, he drew some cartoons in response to the Charlie Hebdo massacre, um, and that got him into a lot of hot water. I understand, including a fatwa was put on his on his name, and uh, he had to go into hiding. Is that that's true? That's true. And and just to, to sort of broaden the, the broaden the scope of that, I'd, I'd I'd like to go into the fact, like the how this problem with freedom of speech um, began, because it's it's quite um, extraordinary that that the um, the compromises over freedom of speech actually span the entire length of Bill's career. So, in in 1991, um, Bob Hawke introduced um, Bob Hawke as prime minister introduced legislation to to limit political advertising during election campaigns, and um, he didn't. I won't bore you with the details about how he tried to do it, but it was it was extraordinarily audacious because he didn't question, he didn't stop for a second and think, "Wow, gee, that's a bit of a bit of a uh, a compromise on free speech." Um, and it was challenged in the high court, and the high court found that it, that there was implicit in the constitution. This is in, then in 1992 when the, the when the decision was finally handed down. The high court said. Actually, there's an implied right in the Constitution that um, political uh, speech is free in Australia. There can be no restrictions on it. And the commentariat erupted, the commentariat in Australian newspapers erupted into sort of celebration because, you know, the commentariat are so fixated on on politics that they that's the only free speech that applies to them anyway. And, and um, there was only one uh, person in... Australia, who was who was a little bit sceptical about it, was a former editor of The Australian and a great Australian journalist called Frank Devine. And he said, well, if they can interpret it one way, they can interpret it another way. And uh, he said the only way to ensure that the, that freedom of speech is, um, is guaranteed is to make it explicit in the Constitution. 
and he said it would transform Australia and it would it would end the tradition in Australia of governments assuming um, a role of controlling the minions, controlling the ordinary people of Australia. Anyway, the a couple of, it didn't of course it didn't happen. And a couple of years later, under Paul Keating, the um, as Prime Minister, Paul Keating had rolled Bob Hawke by this stage. They introduced um, a couple of bits of legislation. One was called the Racial Hatred Bill or at Proposed Act, uh, which would make racial hatred, expressions of racial racial hatred, uh, an actual crime um, uh, punishable by terms in prison. And at the same time, they also introduced civil action for the same offences into the Racial Discrimination Act, and it became Section 18C, right? So at this stage, so um, just to backpedal a little bit, when the, the original High Court decision was made, Bill began, that week, Bill began his career as a newspaper cartoonist. He was given a spot in the Financial Review um, to fill in for uh, the resident cartoonist. And Bill addressed this issue in a very flippant way because no one at the time thought, oh, you know, freedom of speech, you know, who cares? It's, you know, Australians will always have free speech. That was the kind of cultural assumption at the time. So a couple of years later, Bill's at the Australian when the Racial Discrimination Act, when Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act is introduced. And again, he treats it quite flippantly in his cartoons. But the the key point here is that at the time when these when this legislation was being proposed, there was a Senate committee was um, formed to debate the virtues or otherwise of these of this proposed legislation. And the committee was warned by an expert witness that all all commentary is in one way or another political. And the committee disagreed. So what they were saying was that if you're being racist, you can't possibly be political. That's essentially what they were saying. And so therefore it didn't, this legislation did not, in their opinion, contravene this implied uh, protection in the constitution of political free speech. And on top of that, the committee also said that even if there were cases of of um, free speech that were uh, that were deemed racist, and uh, they would be they would be checked by the Human Rights Commission, which would oversee Section Eight and C. And if there were any vexatious or frivolous or insubstantial claims, the Human Rights Commission would just go, oh, well, "Stop being stupid," and the the case would not go any further. When this was put to Parliament, the attorney, the Attorney General at the time, Michael Lavarge, used the word. He said, "This this legislation would be educative," which he meant. Which he by which he meant, this is legislation that we are using to teach the minions how to relate to each other. This is us telling the Australian people how we think they should behave. Which which is incredible because that's exactly what Frank Devine was warning us about. Anyway, so that's that's 1994. Fast forward now to 2016, 
And Bill publishes the cartoon that we talked about a minute ago. Bill was the political cartoonist for The Australian. And what he was saying was not racist, and it was certainly not racist. That can quite, quite um, persuasively be argued. But what is beyond a doubt was that it was certainly political. He was a political cartoonist expressing himself in the Australian newspaper. So according to the arguments that, that justified the introduction of Section 18C in 1994, Bill was safe, right? That's argument one. Argument two, that even if there were a frivolous complaint against Bill, the Human Rights Commission would throw it out, right? So both of those arguments proved to be um, false. Not only was Bill, not only was Bill actively and pro, well, proactively pursued, or, or sort of, uh, sorry, charged under the uh, under Section 18C, but he was proactively pursued by the Human Rights Commission. Now, the point I'm trying to make is, I know this is a very detailed uh, sort of recollection, and I'm I'm not being entirely um, clear about how what the point I'm trying to get at is that, but what is what started in 1991 with with that Bob Hawke legislation and that implicit finding in the Constitution that just wound up being so vague, and then the creation of Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, that spans Bill's career. And in the end, it was it was the thing that defined him. And and you know, I'd, as I said before, I, I'd I'd argue that it con- contributed to the heart condition that, that killed him. And what, what happened to Australia over that period? I mean, Australians used to be quite a racist bunch of people. You know, we, we, were, we, were not, we were not nice for a long time. I mean, I grew up in Western Australia, you know, among people who were extremely racist to our Indigenous brothers and sisters. And, and you know, Italians and Greeks who, who attended my schools, you know, copped a bit of a uh stick you know but i i don't think australia as a result of all that's happened since the introduction of section 18c i'd argue australia is is not a better country i'd I'd argue that we are actually more divided that all this effort to compromise our speech or as michael lavarch would say um educate the minions about how to behave has actually made Australia a worse country, and that's what made that's what drove Bill. That's what made mm. him so passionate about what was what was going on because he saw that it was th- that this was pernicious. That that the the ultimate effect, good intentions notwithstanding, the ultimate effect was that Australians were less free, and Australia was not as nice a country, and more divided. Well, let's hear from the man himself. I have a quote here that he wrote uh, in the wake of all the controversy. He said that freedom of speech is the principle that enables everyone to contribute to the marketplace of ideas, where bad ideas are challenged and replaced by better ones in an ongoing process, the process of which is eventually to arrive at the truth. It's not only essential for the maintenance of a free and civil society, it is the thing that created our free and civil society. What do you think of Bill's words there? Oh, I just, I I simply can't argue with them. I mean, that's... You know, freedom of speech is everything. You know, that when 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 Scott Morrison said freedom of speech has never created one job, uh, I think he was treasurer at the time. But you know, to be a cabinet minister or a senior federal MP and say something like that is so utterly disheartening, because if it 
if free speech creates any jobs at all, I mean, it creates, it, in my opinion, it's created all our jobs, but if it creates any jobs, it's political ones because that's what politicians live and die on is, is their convictions and the things that they say and how how um, uh, resolutely they they hold and, and, and express their opinions. So, yeah, I can't argue with Bill. I mean, and in, in some ways I, I like to think I'm continuing his fight. Um, there are a lot of people who are, um, but uh, the, the, the argument that everything emanates, firstly, from free speech, in my opinion, is simply irrefutable. Well, uh, one of the parallel stories in your book, just to change tack for a second, is the history of the last golden era of the newspaper man. Uh, it's oh, yeah. Really, yeah. really to, to us, it really does read like science fiction, uh, you know, <laughs> the idea of getting paid to write words and uh, and to, to go to an office and do what you did is, is extraordinary in the current context. And um, can you give us a sense of what it was like to be in the engine room with Bill uh, of a media machine with, you know, genuine reach and influence at that time? It was extraordinary. And newsrooms in those days were incredibly fun places to be. They were, you know, there, there was a lot of eccentrics in newspapers at the time. And, uh, you know, we, 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 loved, we loved the product. You know, we loved, I just, I just loved working at The Australian in those days. It was such an amazing place. There were so many, um, you know, kind of weird, the, not a lot of weird people, but just so many characters and so much history and, and so much going on. Um, it was also a, um, the, the profession in those days was, you know, pretty alcoholic. You know, I kind of caught the last, um, last the, the, the dying days of that. Um, you know, if, if you... If you wrote a good story, you know, you made a front page, then you'd probably spend the next couple of days at lunch, you know, at the pub kind of thing, you know. <laughs> um, but um, it was, you know, it was lucrative. You know, one of the things I, I, look, I look back on those years and realise that, you know, newspapers were, news, newspapers had, had grown as the, into the role of guardians of um, of politics and and so on, you know, like um, they they represented their readers really well. So the business model in those days was, um, you know, you, you'd produce a product that would that would speak to power on behalf of the readers. So you you know you know if, if politicians are misbehaving or or businessmen are acting corruptly or whatever, you know, journalists would, would approach those stories as, um, you know, sort of reflecting the indignation of their readers, going, how can you, you know, how, how can you deceive the, the voting public like that or your consumers or whatever? You know, I remember right from the start that that's how we were drilled as ambitious young journalists. And... Um, that was a very effective business model, but what we, well, I, one thing we didn't realise at the time was that we were, you know, because we were producing these products that were so popular, we didn't realise that it was actually the sort of, um, from a business perspective, we were we were just lucky, you know, especially over at Fairfax, they had these newspapers that were so widely read that everyone who wanted to sell a car or, you know, advertise a job or 
you know, advertise their, their lawnmower around, they had to stick it in the newspaper. And so newspapers in those days were extremely profitable and just awash with cash. And that's why newspapers were such um, magnets for eccentric people and so on. All that changed with the introduction of the internet. And sadly, not only did the business model die, but but so did the journalistic model. You know, it, it's it's quite alarming to see some of the great publications of the world, um, newspaper publications of the world, no longer, in my opinion, sticking up for their readers. Instead, they, they've just become uh, mouth, mouthpieces for the new elite, you know, the, the, the recent lockdowns and um, mandates for vaccines sort of brought this into sharp focus. So, you know, the, the, the publications that would have 20 years ago questioned the need for lockdowns and the need for um, vaccine mandates um, were, over the past two years, just simply um, repeating the, uh, the, the dictates of the new elite, and I, I, it's it's awfully disappointing because the um, because newspapers used to be so good at sticking up for the little guy, they just don't do it anymore. Mm, well, if if Bill was alive during the uh, COVID period, I'm sure, I'm sure he would have uh, he would have drawn a few cartoons that would have uh, raised a few eyebrows. But um, perhaps we could pivot back to to art uh, while we still have you here. Um, yeah. What was Bill's relationship like uh, with the Archibald Prize? And, and, and maybe you can outline what, what the Archibald is for our international listeners. Yeah, the Archibald Prize goes back to, oh, geez, how old is it? It goes back to the 1930s, I think. It's the annual prize for portraiture. Um, and it's, uh, it's administered by the Art Gallery of New South Wales, um, which uh, the, the trustees of that art gallery are the judges, um, which is cause for some um, scepticism because then these are not necessarily people who are um, experts on art, let alone portraiture. And it, it has had a quite a controversial history. There's been times when when winners have wound up in court cases over whether or not they actually qualified to enter in the first place. And um, But it, it in the sort of, I don't know, late 70s or so, it started to become uh, an annual um sort of social event you know like if, if if you were an artist or the subject of an artist's portrait that got hung in the archibald prize that you know, they'd make they'd select 30 or 40 odd from the hundreds that there was that was that were submitted and if you're if you were hung in the exhibition um then it was it was you know you had a lot of social cachet and if you won you know you had you had sort of celebrity status for a couple of days and Bill was when he, when Bill Bill was a um, uh, originally his 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 first ambition was to become a, a world famous artist and he went to Europe and studied the, the the great masters and lived in Germany for a while and held a couple of exhibitions and then came back to Australia and his his first ambition was to cut it as an artist and he did hold one exhibition um, and then realised that he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna pay the bills he had a couple of kids at the, by then and. So he pivoted to newspaper illustration and eventually cartooning. But he, on the side, he continued to be, at at some stages, just obsessive about the Archibald Prize. He thought it was it was his because he thought he was he would inevitably win it because portraiture was his thing. One of Bill's great skills was he was a good judge of character. He you know he could 
he could really suss you out. Like he, you know, his his fascination with people was so uh, intense that it just made him a far better uh, portraitist than he ever was as a landscape artist. And he, you know, he kind of gave up landscape as a young man anyway. He was so he was very good at it, and his, some of his entries were excellent. And he won what is um, called the the uh, the People's Prize, you know, people would go to the exhibition and vote, and he won that a couple of times. And there's a there's another prize called the Packing Room Prize, where the the blokes who unpack the portraits at the gallery they they are given a vote as well. And and Bill won that a couple of times too, but he never won the Archibald, and it 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 actually disturbed him quite a lot um, at one stage. And it, uh, you know he. His, his love of art was so deep that it really disturbed him when, you know, it's kind of people who who were more fashionable and gimmicky about art um, were winning it and and he wasn't. Um, yeah, Fred, he... Fred I, I went to the Archibalds a few years back and I, I'm so surprised. That, I mean, maybe it's changed over the years. Bill seems like such an iconoclast and alarican. This is a dreadful uh, uh, event. Like I looked, at, I looked at now. It is. I looked at the, the the pictures on the wall, the subjects and the artists, and it it looked like an ABC green room or like a garden party, at, <laughs> a garden party at Lee Sales House or something. It was. It was just so so. I don't know. As uh, the the words you brought up earlier that uh, from Bill, frauds and phonies. That that's exactly who I felt were it was being. Um, perpetrated, judged, and, uh, you know, the whole thing. So I, I'm just, I just don't know. Um, I mean, did, had Bill gone off this event totally by the end? Oh, yeah. He gave up in, oh, when was it? It was uh, probably around 2007, I think, perhaps. His last entry was of his dear friend, um, Paul LePettit, who was a, um, film critic for the um, Sunday Telegraph newspaper, and he and he and Bill were, were very close friends. And um, Bill entered uh, a portrait of Paul, and that was the last one he did. And I, I think he knew by then that he wasn't going to win it because um, Paul didn't have the sort of social social. Uh, he didn't tick the right boxes to win the Archibald as a subject. And by then, Bill was um, not particularly. Uh, obsessed with winning it anyway because um, it was probably clear by then that that the trustees would would never give it to him but that, um, event, that event seems to be representative of the of the shift in art and culture in general like it's become incredibly uh, moral predictable uh, act completely activist driven so if you if you, like that's what's so great about Bill's portraits is that they are they are some of them are dark and you can yeah. almost smell the nicotine <laughs> on the canvas, yes. like, like, like yes. and 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 they're weird and 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 scary. Like his his his, his um drawing of Graham Richardson is is kind of um it, it's so it's dark and scary and weird and grotesque, you know. There's and a I, there's a there's a menace in the in the in the Richo. You know, mm. he's he's kind of he's captured. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, Bill had an interesting relationship with art. He. As a young bloke, he had this visceral dislike for art schools. Like he went to the Julian Ashton Art School and that was useful to him because he, uh, Julian Ashton Art School was not one of those trendy 
places that taught you the latest movement, uh, you know, art movement or art style or fashion or whatever, it just taught him really good drafting skills, which held him in good stead for the rest of his career um, as an artist and a cartoonist and illustrator. He, he didn't think artists were uh, sort of, uh, a lot of artists in the 20th century considered themselves to be kind of geniuses and were kind of chosen, had, had innate, um, unique, brilliant insights into the human condition. Bill didn't think artists were like that. He once, he once told a group of students that when Rembrandt sat down to draw a portrait or paint a portrait, all he wanted to do was paint an excellent portrait and whether that portrait would one day be considered a great piece of art would be decided later. It wasn't in Rembrandt's hands. If he was lucky, this, and this is I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing Bill's thought patterns here, um, but I think I've got it pretty right. If if he was lucky, if Rembrandt was lucky at that moment, he would be a conduit to a higher truth and a higher beauty. And beauty and truth were things that you you pursued all your life, and if you're lucky, you might one day get a glimpse at them. You know, this contrasts enormously to what the Archibald Prize has become, and that is, you know, people with political messages who are, you, you want to bang you over the head with, you know, sort of woke messages that have nothing to do with, um, you know, wider truths but are very specific about you know, one particular person and their identity and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, Bill was Bill was sort of right from the from a young man and right throughout his whole life, Bill had a profound aversion to that way of thinking. To him, truth and beauty were lifelong pursuits. And if you were lucky, you would um, you would uh, you know, you'd get a glimpse of them. It's interesting. Uh, like there's a there's a conversation that I had with a guy called Chris Ashton. Chris Ashton, who's a Presbyterian uh, minister, I think. I, I, he, well, he's, you know, a devout Christian. And he befriended Bill in the last couple of years of his life. And I spoke to Chris at one stage um, for the book, and he said that when he met Bill, they, they actually talked about religion. Now, now, Bill was, you know, quite resolutely atheist for all the time I knew him, uh, although he was brought up Christian. and Towards the end of his life, Chris noticed that Bill was looking for a, a, a broader meaning in life. I, I can't remember the words he used. Um, it was something like a deeper truth or, you know, some sort of reason for existence, I think the words he, that he used. And it's interesting that um, that, 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 would, that that would Bill was heading in that direction. I, I, I can't say that Bill would, if he was still alive, he would, you know, have converted back to Christianity. But, you know, it's important that, you know, religion, religion does become important at, at eventually if, if, you, if your life is, is uh, sort of dedicated to the pursuit of truth and beauty, then eventually you become kind of, you, you become sympathetic towards religion. You, 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 you either eventually believe in God or you just understand that God, if he doesn't exist, he, he needs to because we human, us, us poor humans 
actually do need a, a bigger moral framework um, for our existence. And, you know, that's the that's the direction. It's, you know, I know you started the question with the Archibald Prize, but, I mean, when you talk about art, um, you, you can't talk about art as, as just sort of mere paint on canvas. These are attempts to divine, to define or divine, for that matter, um, you know, ultimate truths. And, you know, when you think about that long enough, eventually religion comes into the picture. And, and uh, it's interesting that it was coming into the picture towards the end of Bill's life. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. Uh, art today seems so so very skin deep, quite literally. You know, it's it's just about your skin color. It's just about your genitals. It's just about you know how yeah. you identify, and and it doesn't explore any of these. What 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 are actually quite actually quite cool things to. I'm surprised you don't have to put your pronouns and your genitals like on the on the <laughs> archibald little the little white you know identifying card. Yes, and yeah. Then, yeah. You go. I didn't yeah. like this, but now it, it says here. Now that I do. Now I do. I think, I think they should. They should say, uh, you know, my name's so and so, and I identify as an artist. <laughs> <laughs> but these these wider questions about spirituality and, and 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 you know why we're here and the universe, the cosmos, any of those sorts of things, you know, seem far more interesting and are are not really being explored currently. Um, well, that's a very good point, and you know that's why the Archibald is so damn boring. I mean, you know, there, there is nothing really all that boring about you know the, the bigger questions and and uh and and religion's role in it I, I think that's you know these are subjects that i find incredibly stimulating and so did bill well i just think that the archibald is the opposite of ingmar bergman do you know what i mean like it's the opposite, <laughs> yeah. it's the opposite yeah. of anything yeah. good because we should be talking about and, and you rightly elevated a dumb question about the Archibald where it needed to go, which is into <laughs> life, death, and God, you know, and to, into Thank you. Yes, all the good yes. stuff. And I, I just feel like these these artists don't give a shit about it. I think they'd be really bored of it, but they'd be like, yeah, anyway, they want to talk about uh, politics. They want to talk about activism. They want to talk about sustainability or God knows what or, or uh Generations. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. And from what from what framework? What, I mean, where is their moral framework coming from? They don't have one. If you don't believe mm. in God or you don't believe in the need for God, then where is your moral framework? I mean, without you know, without you know, casting the net too too much further, I've just finished reading the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, and you know, I find it actually incredibly relevant to. To Bill's life, there are quotes in it that that I that Bill Bill himself could have could have said, and you know that you know, it's it's one of the greatest novels ever written, if not the greatest, and it is a thorough examination into the into the relationship between the existence of God and the possibility of morality in this life, and the people who enter the the Archibald are not worried about those sort of things. They're just worried about, like you say, you know, their genitals and their skin colour. What I would say how... about what you said, they'd say, uh, firstly, they'd say, I'm triggered that you brought up that stale, male and pale uh, art, uh, author. They'd say, this privileged uh, man is has, you know, created this book of hate. And you go, well, he was, not, I don't know how privileged he was. He was like locked up yeah, for a while. He spent, and... he spent four years in a in a gulag in Siberia, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't, but that's the thing. But, but we hate the Russians now, right? Well, that's yeah. right. <laughs> that's right. I stand with Ukraine. I mean, <laughs> he, if he was alive to now, he'd be 
if he was alive now, he'd be bombing Ukraine. So what would he know? (laughs) So, yes, I'm so glad you managed to elevate out out into where I think these are the discussions that that I, I, you know, I feel like I miss uh, 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 Bill. I wish I could have spoken to him at, at one of these events at the CIS or something. Or, or you know, I think the ABC should be talking about the things we've been talking about. And um, I think people on the on the on the ABC radio and that should be arguing about you know all of this uh, old school classical big questions. And 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 none yeah. of it's happening. Yeah. Instead, it's we're getting um, it's getting it's, it's all getting very very uh, banal. All we get is victimhood. It's you know it's the only currency uh, that is of value to the left these days. Is how much of a victim are you, and um, and you know what and and which white, particularly white um, demographic, is to blame. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty banal. It certainly is. Well, I think all that's left is to uh, encourage everyone to read your book, uh, Die Laughing. And where, where can they get uh, your book, uh, Bill? Oh, sorry for, for... Uh, dielaughing.com.au. It's, uh, it, it's um, published through the IPA. Um, I hasten to add that, you know, the biggest publishers in Australia knocked this book back and uh, it was a, a, a freedom-defending uh, think tank, the Institute of Public Affairs, that um, stepped up and helped me publish it. Um, so, uh, yeah, fr- dialaughing.com.au. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love people to read it. I'd uh, occasionally meet people who've, who've, who've actually read the book, and I'm, I'm always enormously grateful to anyone who, who firstly bought it, but also read it. I know how hard it is to find the time to read books these days, but I, I do recommend it. I think it's a great encapsulation of Australian culture and history and a great Australian uh, character. I just wanted to mention that uh, there is a discount code for listeners of The New Flesh uh, uh, oh, yes. for, if, that they can use on the checkout page uh, at the IPA. It is, all caps, NEW FLESH. So N-E-W-F-L-E-S-H. I had to read how to spell that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I like, it came up with this. Anyway, that's the discount code. So uh, uh, yes. uh, please go and check Excellent. it out. Yes, please go out and, and purchase it and read it. Um, so our final question is, what are you reading right now? Oh, well, I, I just, as I said, I just finished Brothers Karamazov, which was I, I found almost life-changing. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a, an absolutely extraordinary um, achievement. Um, but I've since started um, The Bodies of Others by Naomi, uh, Naomi Wolf, um, who's a, you know, was a lefty. Um, but she's written a, a really almost frightening book about how uh, COVID restrictions are, in fact, a war against humanity. Um, and the, uh, she, she makes the point, actually, that um, for the first time in, in human history, we are on the verge of being ruled by machines, that artificial intelligence, you know, in the, in the shape of big tech, uh, is going to govern our... Uh, our behaviour, you know, give us access to decide whether or not we, we, you know, we're allowed to travel places, talk to people, earn money, spend money, buy food, whatever. Um, and it's a, um, it, it's, it's alarming. It's extremely alarming. And uh, again, highly recommended.
Well, that that sounds awful. I want to read it right now. <laughs> I, think, I think we should have this person on the show. So, yes, John, maybe, we maybe we should reach well, out. I'll get on to that. I will get on to, to that. But uh, you don't know this yet, Ricky, but I have actually engaged a, a Dostoevsky scholar to come and talk about Brothers Karamazov. So, oh, fantastic. This is actually happening. Yeah. I've, I need to get back to her today. Uh, I've, I, and so, unfortunately, that means, Ricky, you've got to get reading soon. Oh, mate, yeah, well, you better allow yourself a good three or four weeks to get through it. It's it's not easy, and it's a long book. But it, it just, to, sorry to, you know, to keep rabbiting on about it, but it, it gets mentioned a lot these days. Like, everyone is talking about Brothers Karamazov. So, uh, because, you know, now that Western civilization is under such threat, um, uh, Dostoevsky uh, was producing a lot of this. You know, he, he was writing at the beginning of the age of materialism and the, the death of God and uh, and was predicting the consequences of those things. And um, it's well worth reading. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Fred, uh, for being so generous with your time today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. And um, thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm.